SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, go to greenlitpodcast.com. This is not your kingdom. These are dwarf lands. This is dwarf gold. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shirky. With me is Thrasher. And I've been shot by a morgel shaft. And Alex? You're a wizard, Harry. <laughs> That's right. We're talking about The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog. Or if you listen to the audio commentaries with Peter Jackson, they always, the New Zealanders pronounce it Smeaug. Smeaug. Which drives me up the wall. There is much debate amongst fandom as exactly how you're supposed to pronounce it. <laughs> but I have to, didn't they release some records with the Tolkien reading excerpts? From, you know, they may uh, very well have. I'm, but of course, you know, when, I, when I was a kid, those, those recordings weren't easily accessible. I bet somebody's put them all online now. So yeah. Could, yeah, I know YouTube has them. Um, there's certainly one where he did... Lord of the Rings, I don't know if there's a Hobbit one where you get Tolkien's... Uh, I mean, because he's a linguist, and I'm sure he had very strong ideas of how these things should be pronounced. Yeah, I'm sure they probably had a very dignified, regal you know, way of speaking. Well, well, that's our quest for next week yes. to find those recordings so that we're pronouncing all the uh, blizz blaz and uh, yeah, flint uh, uh, properly. I mean, I think exactly. that's easy enough. Anyhow, yeah, this... Desolation of Smog is the second one. Came out in 2013. So, I mean, they did a good job of filming all these, you know, simultaneously, back-to-back, however you want to put it, in uh, New Zealand. So they came out every Christmas, or every December, more or less, in 2012, 2013, and 2014, respectively. Um, Originally, The Hobbit, uh, I think we talked about this last time, but it was supposed to be just two films, and then kind of, I think, even before there was much production on it, they said, oh, we're going to do three. Um, and for a novel as slim as The Hobbit, it's, uh, I think that's kind of annoying. I think for, for me, at least as someone who's read the book several times, although not recently, uh, this one feels the most padded to me. Um, oh, I mean. any, any thoughts uh, on that, Alex? Yeah, there's, um, oh, I'll, I'll, while I'll admit uh, that watching it the second time through is kind of like the first time. Um, for a movie that's got a lot going on, not a lot happens. It doesn't really, like, there's a lot of action and it, not a lot happens. Uh, we do a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff's happening and it, it feels padded. And then, like you said, with, um, knowing this was kind of, you know, stuffed or uh, stretched out to be three films, it, you're kind of approaching the film in a kind of cynical way already. Like, the odds are mm-hmm. kind of stacked against it to begin with. So it doesn't really uh, help or, I guess, uh, enhance the experience so much. Well, this this movie is, is, is the most weirdly paced. And just, it also, it's so weirdly paced within this trilogy of films. Because I, 
it, it may it makes me realize the last film should have ended with them entering the Mirkwood so that this film could just start with them desperate in the Mirkwood. Uh, and then where it ends, it is so bizarre where it ends. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I'm, I'm, save like, that uh, part for the end, but I, okay. I agree. Like, I, I stood up in the theater and said, like, what the fuck? <laughs> and you were then escorted off the premises. Yes, yes, yes. No, I, um... Stabbed an usher. <laughs> Don't you see? They didn't end it at the right place. You went into witness I, protection I, and changed your name and started a podcast. <laughs> uh, and that's how the sequel was born. No, but there's, um, <laughs> you know, uh, on on the numerous behind the scenes things on the extended versions, um, they have a, a part where Peter Jackson is is in the room with the uh, sound engineers, and they're doing the final mix. And he's having them basically work like almost 24-hour shifts. Like, everyone's falling asleep in this screening room. And oh, yeah, yeah. it's pretty... I mean, that kind of stuff happens more often than, than people admit. But just for them to include that on the documentary, I was kind of impressed. Because it shows, like, how much up against the wall they were to get these things done so quickly with um, how long special effects take and everything. Yeah, this was not an easy shoot, and they didn't have a lot of time to prepare. And I guess, like, Andy Serkis shot a lot of second unit stuff that wasn't used, for, apparently. Oh, that's interesting. He did that, and at some point he was busy doing the Planet of the Apes uh, films. That's right. That is also so bizarre that there's so much packed in to this whole trilogy, but this movie in particular... And yet there's still whole swaths of the film that were left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, that, that yeah I'll talk about it with the extended version. There's, there's a few things in, uh, I mean, one big thing in particular is quite different. But, I mean, yeah, when, when I saw this in the theater, it was I went, went by myself to the, the local um, theater in, in Portland, Oregon. The Why do I forget the name? I guess it's just been so long since I've been to the theater. The, the bad guy, that's it. Um, off of Hawthorne, and uh, that reference means nothing to our listeners, I'm sure, but it's it's a theater where you can get beer and stuff, which sort of, I think that always helps make a movie a little bit better or more bearable if you're not sure what you're getting into. And bearable, it, it, bearable, absolutely. And um, it, they should have had like themed Hobbit cocktails, I don't think they did though, but anyhow, <laughs> you know, you could, you could have a, a, a Smaug Stout or uh, it's not a cocktail though, that's a beer. But they I, did I release... To do... they, they, yeah, a cocktail thing at the at my old job they did like uh for the final episode of uh, Game of Thrones. I tried to do like themed cocktails and no one ever orders them. We had like the the bastard, the, the bloody bastard, yeah. Baratheon, blah blah. Uh, they were all stupid and they were just cocktails with like you know like red liqueur in them to like make them bloody basically. So yeah, I, no one ever gets them though. I I <laughs> do like a golem gimlet. I think that would be pretty good. That sounds good. I um, how was it? When I was doing uh, hosting trivia at a, uh, at a place that kind of did different, um, the idea is they would show basically bootleg movies mm-hmm. on, on the screens constantly. Uh, I don't want to say the name of the place, but um, they I, I told them to to make a drink called uh, Whiskey Business. <laughs> and, um, I, I don't think anyone. I was quite proud of that pun, but I don't think anyone ordered it. And it's kind of like a bad man magazine joke or something, but it was like I was, I was pretty happy with that one because I mean, at a certain point, you're like, 
Okay, when does the pun become too forced? And it should also say what the cocktail is. Uh, anyhow, for this movie, they, they had tie-in licensed beers. I don't know if people remember this, but um, yes. there is like a Smaug beer and a, a something else beer, perhaps a Dorvin beer. But I, I didn't pay for it because it was like in a collector's bottle. And you're paying like $10 for like one beer for maybe a, a 20 like a 24 ounce bottle yeah. or something like that. Well, and the funny thing too is whenever there's tie-in beers to like anything fantasy or like old-timey related, it's always like dark port, you know, stout, chocolate <laughs> milk oatmeal stout, you know, it's never like a pilsner or a pale ale. Or something know, with a hint of mead. Yes, exactly, you know, yeah, like, like honey yeah. mead stout. Rah, rah, rah. That makes it more old-timey, I guess. Yeah, I mean, what Mortal Mortal Kombat had some tie-in beers for some reason. I wonder if we'll see that again with the the new movie coming out on HBO Max. And Scorpion's Get Over Beer, that was one of them. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. Um, anyhow, yeah, back to Desolation of Smaug. Uh, it's I, I I just feel so the way this place ends and like the the stuff that's in here, it just feels. And this is part of when you make a thing a trilogy. The middle chapter is seems like it's biding its time like you want to get to, to the good stuff and see stuff finished and it's just people having more of these adventures and so forth and uh the the hobbit is a simply i would argue the hobbit's a simpler story but the lord of the rings has better characters in my book oh um, totally but, yeah, and the hobbit i think is a more enjoyable story or at least easier to follow um but seeing it stretched out i think just makes it its repetitiveness kind of like you know there's there's several things where it gets saved by Gandalf magically coming in and saving the day or it's like what is uh or his uh the magic sword sting saves the day or something I mean it's a lot of yeah similar things going on that if you're reading a chapter a night to a child or just yourself it might satisfy you in a way that seeing it all smushed together sort of like binging a tv series it, it doesn't always uh, work out for the best I think, like, also one of the things that these movies do that's such a fatal flaw, and it's like with, it's like with the like the Transformers films and stuff like that, is that like they take big action spectacle and they make it boring. Like it's like once we get into like big action scenes, we're kind of like, okay, another sword, another like arrow, and you're gonna you know do a little dancey twirly thing, you know, and then it's just kind of like. It's so padded and unengaging. You just never really get into it. You know, you don't feel the stakes because it just kind of there's this like veneer of artificiality to it, and it just and it doesn't really grab you the way you know we uh, you know saw you know people getting the shit kicked out of each other in the you know two towers or anything like that. Well, okay. So you you mentioned about things being artificial. If you don't mind me skipping ahead for for a moment, yeah, go for so, it. So we we all know in, in the book The Hobbit where like the dwarves escape from the Elf King's Hall by hiding in wine barrels and floating down a river. And in this movie, that is shot like it's a Fast and the Furious chase sequences with people racing on barrels and being constantly under fire from orcs and elves and all this stuff. And it's it's very high energy, but very, very indulgent. Some of the acrobatics oh, yeah. that these ba- these barrels that you can't steer get involved in in. That being said, in the middle of this chase sequence, there are three cuts. And mm. those three cuts, it looks like they were shot on a... It's a POV shot. Three POV shots. 
that look like they were shot on a GoPro. The video quality is completely different. It is completely out of sync with the rest of the movie. And yet, for those very reasons, it makes me care about this chase sequence because it makes <laughs> me realize, oh, oh shit, parts of this are a real river. <laughs> Some of yeah. this is really happening. And like, right. Every time I'm about to get bored with this chase sequence, they cut to one of those POV shots and suddenly I'm I'm invested once again because it feels like all of those POV shots have the energy of a stuntman that is about to die on film. <laughs> like it's funny cuz after all the uh, quote excitement, it cuts to, you know, them just kind of like, you know, going down the lazy river without any action. It looks like a complete different movie. Like the level of of the visual quality is so much less compromised. Like it looks like, you know, when you watch an old movie and they like edit in old VHS footage that they couldn't restore. Like if like, uh, it was, like, it felt like that difference, you know, you've got like Legolas, like, you know, like tap dancing on people's heads as he's, you know, throwing arrows faster than light at orcs and whatever. Um, but also I was watching this and I was like, yeah, I know Legolas is a badass dude and everything, but like, I didn't like, cause he's doing all these like, you know, balletic acrobatics and shit. And I'm like, could he do this? Is this like a thing he could do in the before times? Like I, I knew he's a pretty limber guy, but I mean, well, he's Scott Hamilton out there. He's like, you know, standing on one foot and then he does some twirly stuff. And then he serves on an orc for a second. And he's like Tarzan. Then he rides on two dwarfs in barrels. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I actually so... like that sequence because, because there's a bit of lightness to it. There's a bit more humor. And even though, I mean, yeah, in the book, that's not what happens. It it feels like people are, are having fun and doesn't feel so leaden. So uh, about uh, another thing related to that, though, like Le- Legolas's presence in this movie is pure fan service. Oh yeah. But I it doesn't feel particularly forced to me, despite all the the, the wild acrobatics he's doing. If only because well, yeah, he could have been there. There's no nowhere does it say he couldn't have been there. He's just you know way more involved for the purposes of, of of this movie, and and yet I don't think his presence is all that successful because I realize so much of what makes an insufferable hyper competent prick like Legolas work <laughs> in a movie is when he's contrasted with someone like Gimli. Like without without Gimli to mm. play off of, he's just not that interesting of a character. Well, right. I mean, not just that, and, and this is me, I, I don't like talking about actors' weight, but it does come across with, the, especially if it's a prequel, like, he he's he's older and he's a bit, like, heavier or something in, in this film, as people get when they get older, well, and at the same time these, using all this... These were but, the good times. That's why I, he's I guess, but they're also using a CG to make him look younger, and it almost looks like he's just injected with Botox in every scene. Like it just is this. <laughs> it was this uncanny kind of euthanizing, uh, deagifying thing to me. That is just like, is that Orlando Bloom? Is that a computer version of him? What am I? What am I looking at here? Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about Alex. You're talking about him like bouncing off people's heads and stuff in, in the river scene. And I think back to the two towers, and you know, a scene that got in the pause in the theater the few times I, I saw that film and at the movies was he it's at the uh the big battle at the end at helms deep and i think he just sort of like slides down the the railing of a staircase and leaps into a horse yeah okay, that that's, was, some, that's some slidey action okay but that's it. pretty mild compared to all this like mario 64 shit they have in this <laughs> <laughs> well so i think 
and I think this this is the uh, the problem of of this this is both a good good and bad because there's a there's an important detail of both the novel and the first film in this trilogy that this movie forgets to reinforce uh and that is that the story we're seeing is the story as written down by Bilbo that's true in the hobbit it's supposed to be kind of his memoirs uh, but it's true here where we're brought into the story because Bilbo is writing is writing down his memoirs for his family. And, and so I think that's that's why things are so over the top and so floored is that one, it's his memory of the event, but two, mm. he wants to make his allies and friends look good. so he's he's sort of exaggerating some of their great deeds for narrative effect. And, and so so as wild as the barrel chase and certain other scenes get in this, I do feel that it is justified and is in keeping with the themes of the movie. And also, too, it's one of those things, like, I'm not, like, we went over this in the last week's episode, and I think our guest made a really good point that I often agree with. Books aren't movies, movies aren't books. I don't really care when we go off script by that. I mean, go when we go, when we veer from the text and throw some sure. shit in there just to kind of round it up. I'm fine with that. I don't mind deviations, but when, when it feels padded in a way that's just kind of boring i don't know it's one of those things where like um take the extended cut of fellowship like when they're just kind of hanging out in the hobbit village and lighting off fireworks and hanging around and smoking and chilling out i love that shit i could do that all day i'm almost like i don't want the story to happen i just want to you know hang out Mm -hmm. with these guys this is fun um and there's just none of that like it's like they padded it with all exclamation parts and, and points and forgot to like use good grammar, you know? Oh, so yeah, like jump... you need... Oh, go on. Well, well jump, jumping back to the beginning, because like it, they, they try to inject some energy into the beginning by having it open with a flashback where it's the first meeting between Gandalf and Thorin, which, which is a, a nice scene that has a, has a bit of tension, but I, I don't think it's necessary really to bring us into the film. And then we cut immediately to everybody running and finally taking shelter in Bjorn's home. I do have to say this. Um, Bjorn, the whole scene with, with Bjorn and, and his cabin in the woods, that is exactly the way I imagined it when I read The Hobbit mm-hmm. when I was 12. Yeah. Yeah, there's a nice um, kind of goofiness to the the transformation, and you uh, there, there's more of that in the extended version, which is kind of fun of them just like hanging out and talking, and it's a nice kind of kind of resting point after you, you at the beginning. I mean, you have the flashback, and then you have them uh, being uh, rescued uh, with the eagles and all that, and uh, that they get to kind of chill out is is a nice thing that happens before everyone runs off and do their separate stuff. Um, I'll say that, you know, like a big thing in here is is Gandalf's kind of side quest in, in this movie, I think is boring as shit. I really oh, don't think it's necessary. Goodness, yes. Where he just yeah. goes to the ruins and there's a big difference in the in the extended cut. But what, um, Thrasher, why don't you describe what happens and, and do you have any thoughts on that? Well, so on on the one hand, it it is entirely unnecessary, like to, to, uh, all the stuff that Gandalf does, because because all he's doing is doing like research that is important to understanding some things in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but 
if you're watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy, it tells you everything you need to know. Yeah. So it's it's almost like this weird mini prologue. Uh, and and it, and it's 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 frustrating for me because it is completely unnecessary to this story. And when it comes down to it, the only connective tissue that I think any version of the Hobbit really needs with any version of the Lord of the Rings is just the ring itself. Uh, and Gandalf and Gollum. Uh, that's really all you need. Um, but here, you know, we we see him, you know, go into the the prison slash tomb where the old kings of men were interred, and it's one of those things where like the visuals are amazing, and there's so much implied storytelling in the design of these environments where he's doing his research for stuff that just isn't all that important to this particular movie. Uh, like, like for instance, when, when like when you know he sees the one like cell that's been busted open, and then you look down and you see like the nine other levels of cells. It's just such a a great chilling moment, and it gives us a reason to see Radagast again, which I always appreciate. You know, so you know, cool. you know, way to go, Sylvester McCoy. You got into another one. Um, <laughs> but then, and then you know, finally, like when 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 he you know when when Gandalf like confronts quote unquote the necromancer who is just like the precursor to Sauron. It's like, well, yeah, we know he's the precursor to Sauron. We saw the other trilogy. Yeah, you don't need to sell us on the Fellowship and Two Towers and uh, Return of the King. You know, like, we don't need to be sold on those. They're pretty great. Actually, we missed them quite a bit. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, that was it. What did you think of, like, the the fight scene Gandalf has in the theatrical? Because that's a big difference with the extended one. Strangely enough, like, I do... on its like again it's on completely unnecessary to the movie that being said within the context like on its own i kind of like it like it is sort of whenever you hear like a magic battle vaguely described in in an old fantasy novel or like a michael moorcock novel or what have you like this is like a perfect visualization of it it's just two different kinds of energy slamming into each other while people do dramatic spell casting poses so like on that level, I appreciate it, but it can be completely removed. Although something I do like is when he gazes upon the necromancer and we get that wonderful psychedelic thing where you're constantly falling through the eye and the slit pupil in the eye keeps turning into another person in a flaming crown. That's mm. wonderful. That was pretty cool, yeah. But it's a lot of him fighting against nothing, isn't it? I mean, it's later. just a wall of darkness with a vaguely anthropoid shape in it, so yeah. <laughs> Right. So like, I remember in the the thing is like the, these films like I remember these like Great Wide Vistas and stuff in The Hobbit and this film just feels so much like the frame just feels like a, like a, there's a, like a lot of tight framing where you'll see like an up like a like a close up on someone and then cut to like you know a hand reaching into like you know a mucky creek or some shit and um and yeah, like there's like Thrasher, like you said, when Gandalf's you know on his little side quest there, you get some pretty cool expansive shots. But like, they're just the wonder and like awe and like natural beauty of of so many of these scenes feels like so much. They're either very bright or very dark, and that just kind of feels like like a cloaking agent for some of the special effects. And you just don't have like that like texture of environment that made. Um, the other films, and I think parts of The Hobbit as well, that made those films feel much so much stronger to me. Oh, so uh, the the Mirkwood, I I will say like this, the Mirkwood is where uh, 
Steve, or sorry, where Peter Jackson's background is like a maker of B movies and experimental horror comedies really comes into play. Because like when there's just these wonderful twisting environments and like you really like you really do have your sense of space destroyed as as you see these characters doing these taking these weird winding paths uh, through the Mirkwood. And there is one shot in particular that I love just because it's so low tech where they're all marching through the wood. They're exhausted. And Bilbo looks down at his feet. And when he looks down at his feet, his feet are walking backwards and he kind of like does a double take. Mm. And like you see him walking forwards, then you see his feet walking backwards. And and it and I love that because it does totally mess with your sense of space and time. But also it's the cheapest special effect. It's just the camera running backwards. Yeah, he's moonwalking. It's it's so it's so great. And then and then it comes to a head when they're all when they're all captured by the spiders, because like I think in the book, it's what, it's like three spiders here. It's like a whole, a whole army. It's nice and it's creepy. And they really split the difference between giving the spiders like anatomically correct spider bodies, but faces Mm -hmm. just human-y enough that they can be very expressive. And it's, it is a level, and this has been throughout the whole trilogy, but never more so here, the level of violence that they get away with in this family (laughs) fantasy film is truly amazing with them dismembering spiders. Like that scene where all the dwarves get cut out of their cocoons and they just rip all the legs off of one yeah. giant spider at once. It is, it, it is, it is an amazing gory fight scene that probably shouldn't be in this movie, but I love just, just, just the brass on Peter Jackson for filming the spider attack this way. The only thing I miss is that one of my in in both the book and the animated adaptations of this scene? I think one of the best parts is when Bilbo, kind of using the ring to appear and disappear, starts insulting the spiders. I really <laughs> wish they had kept that because it, it it really speaks to how Bilbo is growing as a character. So as a result, because we don't do that, you know, he he doesn't appear to have grown as much within this film. And well, also, we kind of get the um. Start the story starts hinting at the you know dark power of the ring because you see him really just like Hulk out on that last spider when the ring gets away from him for that second and it's a good it's a great performance from uh, Martin Freeman and yeah he really smokes that thing and um, but I like I like that you mentioned the effects and the level of detail in the spiders because I'm not afraid of spiders but I was afraid of these ones <laughs> you know what I mean they were uh, successfully creepy and very very well designed yeah yeah I mean the spiders. These are scary, and I think just all the levels of detail, it's an improvement over what we saw in Lord of the Rings with Shalob. Um, uh, although I think that spider looks good as well, but but these ones, you, you get all the stuff hanging off of it and uh, kind of the darkness, the spookiness of the woods. I mean, this is that's probably one of my favorite sequences in this film. Um, we do have a lot of business with the, the wood elves before the barrel scene, and there's a character uh, newly invented for the film, uh, Toriel, or I don't know if she's, I don't think she's in the book at all, but, or maybe just, well, she, she's not in the book, but I feel, yeah. I, I, I feel like she's mentioned in the marginalia of the Lord of the Rings. I don't think she's 100% mentioned in this film, but unfortunately my Tolkien scholarship is not as good as it should be. Yeah. Maybe you mentioned uh, Kate from Lost, right? what Kate from Lost, right? Um, I didn't see Lost, but oh, okay, yeah, that I think that it's played by. You're right. Yes, yep. She's okay. escaped from Lost, and, and <laughs> she is the Wasp and the Ant Man and the Wasp, and uh, 
Well, it's it's one of those things. It's again, it's an addition that def- that is totally unnecessary, and yet. I find her pseudo romance with with Keely kind of charming and cute. Which one's Keely? The bearded one, right? Or uh, all no, no, he's the he's the young one who eventually uh, I think gets poisoned. Yes, okay, yeah. the handsome dwarf, or one yes, of the one of the handsome just, dwarves. I mean, that's just, just there's too many fucking dwarves. The way they yeah, play off of each other is just it's like I love seeing them interact. It's very cool, yeah. very cute. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it gets a bit melodramatic sometimes but it it at least gives the story a little something because if you didn't have that I don't, I don't know what else they would have thought of to to fill the time with and i mean because it was all male characters in the book for the most part so you have a a, a, a woman in action scenes is is cool and i think she does a good job um in in the part and but i, I do want to point out uh go back earlier with the Gandalf stuff. So in the theatrical cut, you know, it's a lot of Gandalf fighting against sort of like nothing or kind of obscured effects. For the um, extended version, you open up with a scene in the flashback and it it details about, it talks about the body of um, Thrain, who is the father of... uh... Hi, I'm Steve. And I'm JP, and we host a little podcast called Whatever, Whatever Nerd, a bi-weekly nerd culture podcast where we talk about subjects such as games, comics, movies, voice acting, and did I mention games? You did. Join us every other Tuesday at whatevernerd.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Stu. Hi, Luke. Do you fancy doing a podcast covering every segment of every episode of the beloved 90s cartoon Animaniacs? No, I hate Animaniacs. Join me, Luke, the Warner lover, and him, Stu, the Warner resistor, for Animaniacs, covering every segment of every episode of the hit 90s cartoon Animaniacs, as well as its many spin-offs, including comics, video games, and the movie, not to mention the recent reboot. It's gonna be explainy to the max. Oh. Who is it? All these names are all the same. The father of Thorin... His body was never found. And in that fight scene with Gandalf, he is fighting against a like evil possessed version of Thrain instead of fighting against like nothing or kind of these obscured effects. And um, although the fight scene itself is largely the same, and he has mm-hmm. all the Thrain, this old elf that people thought was might have might have been dead for years, has like a monologue and so forth, and uh, it's I don't know if it's necessary, but it it gives he like says like tell Thorin that I loved him and all this stuff and, and he dies. Well but... it, it clears up a hanging thread because in any other narrative, if there was mention of a person who's supposed to be dead, but they never found a body, you know they're gonna come back in some way, shape, or form. What's odd though is the actor playing Rain is different from the actor that played him in the first Hobbit movie. Hmm. But the character is so Minor in the scheme of things, I don't think people would remember. <coughs> so, I mean, that, that's probably the the biggest difference, and it kind of gives Gandalf a bit more scenes to act against and so forth. Um, and, and as the story continues, from like all the all the stuff with the the barrel uh, things down the river, 
we go into Lake Town, which I think has a wonderful piece of music that introduces that is kind of the Lake Town theme. Well, it's great music, but it's also again, it's it's wonderful design. Like the the way they've designed this community on the lake, it's so it's 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 one of those things where it's like it's this hideous, rundown medieval community that yet I find beautiful because again, there's so much implied storytelling in the design. I love seeing people navigate this environment. We see the little drawbridges, the like paths that they can take boats between things all the people sort of it's it's like there's things that happen that are like only achievable with real sets and real environments like when we see like people passing the spy signals to each other all throughout the all throughout the community and just that we get like Stephen Fry as the master of Lake Town which I appreciate Stephen Fry's presence in this, and I love that he gets a lot of bits of business to do. Oh, the gout! It's the damn boo! I should have a brandy. <laughs> it's it's just delight delightful. Um, and if you told me he improvised all his dialogue, I'd believe you. It just seems so natural coming from him. And and yet we learn way more than we should ever have to know about the internal politics of Linktown. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and something else I just that, that is a weird byproduct of this film is that now there is a Stephen Fry miniature. Ah. Uh, I'm going to send it. I'm going to put it in the chat. But this is the uh, Stephen uh, Fry miniature from the battle, the battles of in, uh, of Middle Earth uh, war game. <laughs> oh my who, goodness! I could only assume he didn't sign off his likeness rights because the miniature looks a nope. lot more like Terry Thomas than Stephen Fry. It does not <laughs> resemble. Stephen Fry at all. That's disappointing. If it would actually look like Stephen Fry in the movie, I might consider purchasing just the figure to have on my desk. Well, I guess you can uh, paint him up a bit more Stephen Fry-like. Well, he's missing a few jowls and kind of gross things, like bits of food on his chin. Um, Alex, what do you think about all the Lake Town stuff? It's interesting. Um, I like the set and the design and everything. It's got some... I like anything that's got, like, you know, I like any water-based civilizations, you know? Um, kind of, like, Venetian little, like, pathways and stuff. I thought water that was... Girl. Yeah. <laughs> we, we do get into some of the Lake Town, uh, you know, inner politics and stuff like that, which is which is fine, I guess. Uh, kind of... It's there. It's cool. Um, but, yeah, the design was cool, and I, I didn't mind being there. Um, but I guess, you know, I wouldn't ever try to be a fish merchant there because that just seems too damn difficult. Well, what about the character that's kind of the, uh, the toady to the master of Lake Town, Alfred, played by Ryan Gage? Now, his miniature looks just like him. Okay. Well, <laughs> but we're not talking about miniatures here, but I think, like, in the movie, if the character is, is sniveling, he seems like an analog in Lord of the Rings to, uh, what the hell is the guy's name? The character... Wormtongue. Yeah, Wormtongue. Agreement Wormtongue. The name like Wormtongue. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but this character is kind of snivelly, not as um, memorable. Did, did any of you guys have thoughts on him? Or... Yeah, it's kind of like, well, whatever. All right. I, I, love, I love a good toady. And like I feel like he he he'd be the first person that the master of Lake Town would dispose of. I just I kind of wish I kind of wish we got to see him have a little bit of comeuppance in this film because like he's he, he he's introduced like you know interfering with Bard's work uh, so so early and like that that he's that kind of officious monster that would allow food to go to waste. Because like, because that that's his whole thing is that that Bard is smuggling the dwarves into Lake Town by hiding them in fish barrels full of fish, 
And when he tries to come in, you know, uh, Alfred comes up and goes, oh, but you're licensed as a bargeman, not a fisher. So over the side it goes. And he makes a good point. You know, this is enough food to feed several families. These are th- lean times. You want to dump this into the river? Because then you're going to have you're going to have riots on your hands. And like just uh-huh. the fact that that for the sake of his like his ledger, he's willing to let families starve just it, it makes me want him to have some sort of comeuppance or at least be sort of humiliated and lose his position well for the extended cut of uh, next week's film the battle of the five armies he does get comeuppance but he does not in the theatrical version that would explain why i was completely unaware of it yep so if you so, think about um, like if they're dumping fish and the way it's irrigated and everything like their leavings have to go somewhere and I don't think they have that complicated irrigation system. So if you think about Lake Town's probably really gross. Well, you have to you have to understand like w- things live in water. True, true. Uh, like like you and in fact you know like we even see like they do have like a toilet that just empties straight into the lake because that's what the house is 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 built on. Yeah, that's every lake. If you if you have ever if you have ever had fish, you have had something that is you have eaten something that swims in its own bathroom. Exactly, exactly. It's just, like it's the price of admission. The price of admission, exactly. Um, yeah, that's where we get that nice briny flavor. Anywho, but yeah, no, it's cool. It's just, um, you guys, I haven't read The Hobbit in quite a while, but, um, did, I mean, was Lake Down this prominent in the book? No. I yeah. mean, they, like, there, there is a character called Master of Lake Town who's maybe referred to in one paragraph or two, perhaps. Um, oh, sorry, Ground Thrasher. Oh, no, just that, like, like, like it's it's a significant location uh, because it's the it's the last place the that Bilbo and the dwarves are before they move on uh, to to the dwarf caves, uh, and they do re- they do a bit of rest and recuperation here, and it sets and it sets up Bard and his family legacy and the Black Arrow that can potentially wound or kill Smog. Um, so like it, it is important, but we are in and out and it is very significant, but we're in and out faster because the book doesn't go into the politics of Lake Town. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I think it's, as much as we get is uh, as much as we get is just that it's a depressed community because it used to thrive off of trade between the dwarves and the rest of Middle Earth. And now that trade is of course gone. Yeah, exactly. I think it's one of those things where like the formula in so many of these films is, a bunch of people get together and then they walk somewhere, encounter danger, escape danger, walk some more, get captured, get freed, walk some more, meet some more other dudes, have a meeting, walk some. So then, like, you have this setup, and then with these films, you have uh, the same design, but like with all these like kind of little intervals and asides, it's like they're setting something up and it doesn't really quite pay off to anything really significant. So it's just kind of hard to get invested in it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like late down, it looks cool. And there's some, there's some interesting business there. And yeah, like the, you know, like you said, he's got to keep his books on point, you know what I mean? So dumping the fish and everything like that. But then, like you said, like you kind of don't get really any comeuppance or anything. So it just kind of feels kind of like, eh, yeah, instead, Lake Town eventually becomes a site of a, of an orc versus elf battle. Oh yeah, of course. And, which, and we which also is it's see... like it's fun to watch, but it's ultimately forgettable. It is it, uh, another thing that is completely unnecessary. 
Right. Also, keep in mind, this movie is called Desolation of Smog, and we haven't gotten to the dragon yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, we might right. as well. So, Bilbo and the dwarves. Yes. Two dwarves and are left behind. I do behind want to point because... out really quick. The, did you catch the Stephen Colbert cameo in Lakedown? No, I missed it. Yeah. I, I, yeah. He, he I, has an eye patch. He's a guy that helps him. Uh, he kind of scurries them along. He's, oh, wait, he's, he's the guy the that board. signals with the eye patch? Yeah, that's him. Oh, that's cool. Because he, he's a big Tolkien uh, fan. I'd almost say scholar. I mean, because they have several segments on his late night show where he answers trivia and all this stuff. Well, what it like, oh God, like back when he did the Colbert rapport, he did a whole segment where he corrected an inaccurate Tolkien reference that some cable newscaster made. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's right. Because yeah, it was something, it was something about like Satanism or, 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 or somebody or the devil or something. And the picture they showed for the devil was a Hildebrandt brothers painting of the Balrog. And a specific mm. named Balrog. And so he like went off on the anchor for like, that's not Satan. Satan is this. And he explains like theologically what Satan is. That's this <laughs> particular Balrog. And then he goes into this whole Cimmerillion dissertation. <laughs> so as you can see, they're two totally different things. It's worth looking up. A bit of the real Stephen Colbert coming out. Oh, yeah. The Colbert rapport. Um Anyhow, yeah, I mean, we go and the, the doors go in. I mean, this is, you know, the, the, the dragon thing is the whole reason why he's hired, right? To help the dwarves <laughs> get back their gold. And they were stolen by a dragon in the dragon days. in the age of old Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins. As, as if what we're referencing is uh, Leonard, have you heard this, Alex? Leonard Nimoy did the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. Oh, that was such a wonderful, beautiful <laughs> song. <laughs> Isn't it with the bassoon song? Yo, there's a video with it too. Yeah, with the kids and the kind. And, and the only reason we have that video today is because some beautiful human being made a VHS or Betamax copy of that yeah. talk show appearance where he did that song. And that must like... have been when VHS stuff was like hard to come by because it's pretty old. Like it was done by a home video nerd, which is probably why it's like high quality enough to be reproduced today but uh so we do get the titular desolation of smog uh they do pass by the desolated town uh, of dale so you know we we can see sort of what's at stake um we get a, a wonderful scene of, of the dwarves climbing the big statue to find the secret entrance uh and there's a great like all is lost moment because the whole deal is they they you have to be there the last light of durin's day will show the keyhole uh, and the sun sets and they never find the keyhole and they try to break down the mountainside. It doesn't work. They all leave dejected. Uh, you know, oh, the quest is over. Um, and Bill, but Bilbo like still has faith. And then it occurs to Bilbo, wait a minute, the last light of Duran's uh, of Duran's day, the moon is also a light and it's the last light that you see in the day is the moon. Cause it comes out after the sun. And in fact, he's, he's right. It's a it's it's again just like speak friend and enter it's a perfect like it's it's what a puzzle in dungeons and dragons should be and so the moonlight like illuminates this tiny crack in the rock that turns out to be keyhole sized so uh he you know the dwarves come back they get in and then, then it's dragon time oh yes 
Yeah, then, so, this is one thing I thought was funny, was that when I saw this, I was a big Sherlock fan, the Benedict Cumberbatch series, and I didn't even know that it was him till after, till someone told me, and I'm like, oh, so yeah, Martin Freeman and Benedict Cumberbatch in a scene together, that's, that, that's cool. And then, you know, like, they take his voice, and he does a pretty good voice performance. I feel like there's a little over-affected with the special effects and the audio tweaking and what have you. But um, the funny thing is that you have Benedict Cumberbatch and, like, the spandex and ping-pong balls, whatever, all over him, like, you know, crawling around and getting into character and everything. And I'm like, I what does that bring to this? Because I do feel like I'm just watching a CG dragon, you know, flail around. And it's like the motion capture and everything. I'm like, I could like Benedict. Thank you for being so committed to this, but I, no, I feel like I disagree. Though I think Benedict Cumberbatch doing the motion capture for Smog in much the same way that uh, that the motion capture was done for Golem. I think it. I think it brings more life and vitality to the character. I mean, it moves as a creature with real weight and that's only possible because benedict cumberbatch really got into the physicality of the performance yeah i don't know um the, like the facial cat the facial stuff i thought was good and like the uh, the it's very it's very expressive well and uh, the design on the dragon's really good but something, um something oh, i sorry. love about about this whole scene just in addition to like him quipping back and forth with bilbo i think that's great stuff but it is is that so there are there are many parts of this movie that that look just like uh, like just a classic fantasy painting, but then this scene in the tr- in the dwarf treasure hall, like it it's so big and so full of gold, it looks bigger and more fantastical than a painting of a dragon lying in a mountain full of gold. Like they, it's it somehow manages to exceed my expectations of of scale. And I absolutely love that about these sequences. I mean, what I really, I think, you know, the, the voice of Smog is great. It's also should be noted that Benedict Cumberbatch also did the motion capture and voice of a necromancer. Um, that's, true. Oh, that's cool. Again, you wouldn't know unless you watched a documentary or saw him do some promotion on the late night talk shows. But I think that he got himself so involved in all that was all, was all pretty fun. But with, um, there's this ridiculous kind of with Peter Jackson's need to do action beat upon action beat to try and outdo himself. Like all the dwarves, like restore this forge to make a big statue of a dwarf to distract the dragon and then try to melt him in the gold. Like it's just this ridiculous. It feels like I'm watching a cartoon. Like I don't know. Like it just took me out of the moment. Like the, yeah, I the kind whole... of just lost track of like May... what are we doing here? May I make a confession? Sure. When I saw this in the theaters, this is when I fell asleep. Yeah, me too. When I not in the theater, fascinating. But rewatching like, I, episode. Like when the dwarves showed up, I fell asleep. I woke up in time to see them start the forges. I fell asleep, and then I woke up again in time to see the statue collapse. <laughs> yeah, I had to rewind it a few times because I just like. I was like, oh, I'm a little sleepy. I'm gonna close my eyes, and I'm like, oh shit, it's been like up like ten minutes. Oh, we're still here. What? And like, this yet? is another segment where, on its own, I love it. But in this movie, it is just so much dead weight. And you know, a lot of people will complain about like, oh, this this felt more like a sequence out of a video game. But this is literally a video game sequence. Trick dragon to light forges, jump to platform, 
pull lever, ride shield down Gold River. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a cross I mean, between a classic... It's, it's like they're playing Metroid. They're playing Metroid or Castlevania in this sequence. Yeah, and it was funny because I, throughout watching this film, I was like, I felt like this, like the barrel scene or the dragon scene or whatever. I'm like, this is... Did they make this for the video game tie-in? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, did they make this for Xbox to, like, you know, nudge, nudge, this will be a good level? You know what I mean? You know, and again, like, some amazing, like, in storytelling based on the production design. But, yeah, it's so, it's so, like, th this is the best version of needlessly overindulgent stuff happening in this film. And And once again it leads to an ending that's so out of pace. Like you do, you do so much work setting up Bard and the black arrow and the giant crossbow. Uh, and there's so much, such a big confrontation between Smaug and the dwarves. And then it ends with just Smaug flying away. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's like, he's he's made look, looks after him and has a line of dialogue. What have I done? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because like it, it does Wait, imply that, this... oh, you give a damn about the people of Lake Town? Well, there's not going to be any more people in Lake Town when I'm done with it. And if as you in... gave a damn about the people of Lake Town, you wouldn't have taken the job to begin with. And, and like, right. and it's so, and, and then like, when the statue of molten gold collapses and like Smaug gets covered in the molten gold, it's such an impressive visual. And then when he flies away, to just have him shake the gold off. Yeah, it, yeah, it's like just cool. they're you're, they're cheating us out of out of like out of a, a visual like we should be seeing that gold flake off in, in the case of battle. And here's and, and this is another confession. I have not seen Battle of the Five Armies. Uh -huh. It came Ooh. out at a very bad time and I just could not bring myself to sit down for another three hours for one of these movies. So I have not seen it. So I will be going into it for the first time next week. I can't help but feel like. The battle with Smog is either going to overstay its welcome or is going to feel like a total anticlimax because it's going to have to happen at the beginning of the next film as opposed to what it should be happening, which is at the end of this film. Right. I'll bite my tongue then not say what I was going to say because it would have. Uh, me too, yeah. We'll save it for next <laughs> week. Exactly. We'll save it for next week. Exactly. Save it for but the yeah, show, like... fellas. But... but yeah, the ending, it's like, okay, so at first I'm like, ooh, gold cover dragon. And I guess maybe to renege on what I said earlier, when he's charging around all gold and shit, that does look pretty cool. Um, so I'm like, A, you made him look cool because he's covered in gold. B, you pissed him off. Um, and then C, the gold just kind of like, whatever. It's like they splashed water on him or something. Um, so, and then like you said, that line, like, what have I done? It's, just, <laughs> it's like we just saw it, you know. You know. Um, yeah, it's... It's not a very rewarding or interesting uh, conclusion <laughs> to go out on. Although say a little no, bit I like whenever Smell breathes fire, I love that like glow that moves up his scales. That's a that's cool. Touch. But again, it's also like a video game. Okay, when its belly flashes red, <laughs> that's when you need to prepare to dodge. Right. It's like reverse Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. And, um. I never got far enough in the Lego Hobbit video game because I was so I got it on sale, but then at the same time I was so angry that it didn't sell. And I, we talked about this last week, but it didn't sell well enough for them to do the uh, sequel, or it would have been DLC, I guess, that would have covered the third movie. So the Lego Hobbit game just covers the first two movies, which is pretty obnoxious as far as, far as that of, stuff goes. Uh... 
Yeah, a lot of chronology issues here with the with these movies and <laughs> different volumes and <laughs> it affecting yeah. other things as well. Certainly. Um, I think we're running a bit late. I don't think we need to pitch a sequel for The Hobbit just because it's, it's so yeah. you know. Um, any, I mean, so, I mean, overall, Desolation of Smog, I give it a sequel no. This is my least favorite in the trilogy. Uh, although I do like Blake Town, I like uh, the the spiders in the beginning are, are probably my favorite part. It's there's just so much business going on. Like it feels like it has to be busy constantly. It's like can't you just take a rest? I don't know. And and the extended version is a little better. It gives some more context to some things. You get some more stuff with Bjorn in the beginning, some dialogue, which is nice to see. But uh, but otherwise, it just feels like. Had this movie ended at a different point, I probably wouldn't be so fed up with it. I really, really think where this ends is an awful, terrible, no good choice. Um, <laughs> Alex, uh, yeah, this is um, like the feeling I like uh, the feeling of frustration that I felt at the end of The Hobbit when it's like smoke, you know, as like the teaser. Mm-hmm is like magnified by like 20 with the ending of this movie where it's like you introduced us to smog um you know a couple years ago and then we went through this even less expected journey and then we get at the end is just like another smog hint um it's like it's not this epic mic drop it's just kind of like a shoulder shrug like Okay, I guess we're gonna have to see the next movie, you know. So I'm gonna go sequel no, just because for a movie that's got all, like I said earlier, for me that has so much going on, not a lot goes on, and you know, I felt myself like kind of checking the time a lot and questioning what was going on, and then knowing what was going on, and then not really caring about what was going on, and then trying to remember what doors were doing what, and then remembering that I don't really give a shit about the doors. Um, so yeah, sequel no. And so, long story short, I, I I'm surprised we're all on the same page. But yeah, I'm going to give it a sequel no as well. You know, for, for all of its its deviations from the text and all of its flourishes and all of its extra material, I feel that Unexpected Journey works and did not overstay its welcome. This movie I feel does not work and it does overstay its welcome. This film, more so than anything, makes me realize I would much rather watch one three-hour Hobbit than this. Oh, my my, my mercy. Wouldn't we all, right? I'm sure there's fan edits that have done such a thing. I can only... I mean, yeah, it's... I mean, considering what that that Hobbit cartoon from the '70s, you and I Thrasher reviewed several years ago now on Sequelcast. It was Check like out barely those over an hour. They were, some of, they were some of our best in the original run. I think mm. yeah, if you can put up with the audio quality, yeah, and and those are up at sequelcast2.com. There, uh, but yeah, um, we, with the Hobbit, it's I mean that that '70s cartoon told the story in like a little bit over an hour, like, and it, it didn't really miss that much of all things considered. Or maybe it was 90 minutes, but I don't think so. Um, it's not long. We'll just say that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's it's less than half of most of these uh, Peter Jackson Hobbit movies. And, uh, I mean, yeah, to see them stretched out in, in such a way. Like, if, if you did The Hobbit, like, as a miniseries or something, like, that's one thing. But it's having it to force it into a movie format, doing it this way, it's just really disappointing i 
I, I agree with uh, a quote from uh, Peter Travers of the Rolling Stone. He describes this, a, uh, he says, a bloated 3D movie. He also mentions there's a ton of padding. And, uh, but he really liked Smog. He says, I would endure another slog through Middle Earth just to spend more time with Smog. Um, that I don't agree with, but I think, you know, it's, it's good, but it also looks a bit typical. And I wonder what Guillermo del Toro would have done, because his concept art for Smog was really weird. Yeah, yeah. I, Ron Perlman was going to do the uh, voice acting, and yeah, his 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 smog was um like kind of like a hairy Fu Manchu-y looking kind of mm-hmm. like old old man dragon, which I think is infinitely kind of cooler. Um, well, it, and it does make sense because like every every insult that's hurled in in Smog's direction is about him being old and clapped out, and it doesn't it doesn't exactly ring true. It seems more like a schoolyard insult rather than something that might actually prey on his insecurities based on his advanced age. Even the yeah, design of the exactly. Hobbit in the se- of, the, of the dragon in the 70s cartoon where it looks more like a cat is more like interesting or kind of different than this looks like what you expect a dragon to look like. And it looks detailed and it's animated well and the voice is great. But like I would have just liked to see uh, just something a bit, a bit more special. I don't know. Also, yeah, like the thing is like Middle Earth is, is different, you know? So like having a contextual barrier between the known world and middle earth world whatever uh you know like a dragon doesn't have to look like a freaking airbrush painting on some guy's van you know what i mean it can be (laughs) whatever the fuck you want it to be you know do you want it to be a a, a rotund grendel looking thing with wings or do you want it to be this great imposing amphibious scaly spiky thing you know like (laughs) yeah exactly it doesn't need to be a game of thrones dragon it doesn't need to be a but yeah, that was another thing I think these movies had against it, is that we were so culturally, everyone was so entrenched with the Game of Thrones, I think, that a return to a sojourn back to Middle Earth wasn't as appealing as it once was, because I think people were just a little, maybe not maybe not burnt out, but their loyalties lie elsewhere. Well, hey, either way, you're going to have to wait for dragons. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's a good point. You know, my sister... Um didn't see the Hobbit movies past the first one because she was like, oh, it's too much like Disney. And, I mean, frankly, so is the, that's what the books are kind of like. But, I mean, especially with the, the context of Game of Thrones going on at the time, when people thought dragons, they thought of uh, a much darker show full of um, uh, a lot of rape and incest and people's heads getting chopped off and limbs oh, getting yeah. torn off constantly. And then you There's see like, lots oh, of you... limbs getting torn off and heads getting chopped off in this movie. Yeah, they were just <laughs> yes, I'll be a bloodless, but yes. Yeah. If it's yeah, with black blood, it's fine. <laughs> right. That's what's weird, too, is that, like, I mean, inviting the comparisons just kind of fucking stupid to begin with. I'd be like saying, like, oh, I like Blade Runner more than Star Wars, you know? Like, sure. Who cares? Like, okay. Yeah. What do you fucking do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I... Sure, it's... Yeah, whatever. Um, on, on to what you're watching. I've been um, watching this interesting sort of film. Uh, I'm trying to think if I talked about this on the show, the Chuck Norris movie that I watched. No. Okay, yeah. So on my uh, little um, Plex server that I've set up where I rip my movies and so forth and, and get to watch them in my bed, which is nice, uh, I've been watching... Uh, 
there's a, a trilogy from Chuck Norris called Missing in Action. Perhaps we'll do it on the show someday, but it was kind of his ripoff of Rambo. I and, remember. Uh, yeah. And the, the second one was actually supposed to be the first one, but the first one, I think, tested a lot better. But the second one is the, the prequel about him and his Vietnam. Uh, he's a, a troop and uh, I don't know if he's a captain. I forget his rank, but, you know, he's this guy called Braddock and him and his his uh, squad in Vietnam during the Vietnam War get shot down in their POWs. And, like, it's pretty much like a POW movie. Um, and it was, for what it was, you know, I, I'm surprised. There was, like, more character stuff than I was expecting. But the main reason I wanted to see it was there was a, uh, I had was recently on kind of a binge of uh, getting books from the library uh, on the, um, like memoirs, and I read Chuck Norris's memoir, and he talked about there was a scene in this that he dredged up the memory of like his own brother that died in Vietnam or something like that for this scene of his acting. And Chuck Norris, even though it was pretty early in his career, like just demanded, I'm only going to do one take of this because it's too mm. painful for me. Oh, and wow. um, and I watched that scene, and I, that Chuck Norris, I'm sure, it has his fans, but I just thought like the acting was very bad in that scene. <laughs> And I felt bad saying that, knowing the context from reading his memoir. But yeah. It's, uh, you know, you do get some, there's a hilarious bit of action where a guy gets shot. He falls, like, off of one bridge onto a waterfall, then falls down the waterfall, and then somehow explodes. Like, it's, <laughs> there's moments like that that's like, yep, this is an 80s film. Uh, but I, I would say it's it's better than I expected. I'm, and I don't know. Like I don't usually watch movies that have sequels out of order, but I just wanted to try it for this one, and uh, I'm curious to see what the other. Because I think the 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 first movie is more about oh we got to rescue the POWs and bring them all back home, uh, which was which was the plot of Rambo: First Blood Part Two. So I'll be curious to see where they go with that because they did uh, three of them um, all together, and I, it's probably my first like Chuck Norris movie that I've ever seen, uh, other than him yeah. you know popping up in Expendables two or, or here and there. Or in the uh, what is it game of is it game of death? That's the Bruce Lee movie he's in. Yep. Uh, yeah. So it's um, it's a game of death, and then Jesus, I should really know this. Game of death was the Kareem Abdul-Jamar one, right? Where yes. Just, uh, yeah. yeah. So the one he's in is in Return of the Dragon, because that's the one where Bruce Lee goes yeah. to Italy. Yeah. I see. These yeah. movies all have similar titles. To a lot of dragons. To capitalize, yes, on Enter the Dragon's popularity, but... Fists and Dragons. Speaking of this, yeah, we just talked about a movie with Dragon, and there you go. Um, Thrasher, what have you been watching? So, just in time for the film's 20th anniversary, which is, in fact, the week we recorded this episode, I watched uh, the 2001 Josie and the Pussycats movie. That makes me feel old, but okay. I've never uh... seen the movie, but I've heard it's great. Oh, no, it, it is. It is so much better than it has any right to be. And for, the, for those of you who don't know, so Josie and the Pussycats are, they're a, they're a fictional cartoon band that originally appeared in Archie Comics uh, and had their own very successful uh, several animated series in throughout the 70s. Um, 
And it's about an all-girl band that wear uh, cat ears and cattails when they perform. And it has a very interesting production history because the whole reason these characters came about is that there were several very successful Archie comic-based animated series, and they wanted to expand those, but they had kind of mined Archie for everything that they could. Uh, Those like Hanna-Barbera and Ruby Spears primarily did those. And so working with Hanna-Barbera, they just, well, let's come up with a, with some new Archie characters specifically to build a show off of. And since, you know, rock music was popular and mystery solving teen shows were always a hit, like, okay, let's do an all girl band that plays music and solves mysteries. And so this, this movie is both a celebration and deconstruction of that. Um, all set within this delightful, very sort of satirized version of a corrupt recording industry. And so in this movie, they are, uh, they are a, a trio of musicians from Riverdale. And the short of it is that this is one thing I love. The movie starts with a bait and switch that is on the level of psycho. Oh, nice. Because the whole first act is about a boy band. And it makes you think the whole movie is going to be about them. It sets up plot lines. It sets up conflicts. <laughs> and then the entire band dies. They don't mm-hmm. just die. They are murdered by their record label. Ah! Because they have somehow uncovered a conspiracy. <laughs> and so their producer, like the plane crashes outside of Riverdale. So the producer jumped since the producer is responsible. The producer jumped out of the plane with a parachute and hunts for Riverdale for his new band. And that's where he finds Josie and the pussycats. And it's just, it's got an amazing cast. Uh, uh, see, uh, Tara Reed plays uh melody, uh, the, the dumb blonde character. And she gets some of the best lines like her. Like they, it's, it's like, it's it's Spike Milligan level dumb person humor in in this. Like you know, if I could go back in time and take it all back, I would. And if I could go back in time, I would meet Snoopy. And she's completely <laughs> serious. But uh oh hell, what was it? Uh uh, let's see who who else is in here. Uh you know, oh Seth Green is one of the the boy band members. Uh Alan Cumming is the uh, promoter. He's great. Parker Posey is the CEO of the record label, and she is fantastic. And That's it's just. Awesome. Oh God. And it's so great. And like, there's this great line. There's a character that's just in so many scenes for no reason. And at one point, a person does ask, Hey, why are you even here? And she just says completely seriously, because I was in the comic book. <laughs> it's it, so it, it didn't worth your trailers, time. Hmm? The trailers for that movie at the time just made it look like a Charlie's angels kind of thing. Just really generic. It didn't uh, stress that it. it was kind of like a, a meta movie kind of winking fun at itself and kind of being like anti-corporate and all these different things. Uh, oh, I've always meant to see it. I've just never watched it. And, and there, there's like, there's some people have criticized it for its product placement. The thing is that's part of the movie. The pro there's a, there is a storytelling reason why there's so much product placement in this movie. And like, and, and it's so brilliant the way the product placement is incorporated into the design in so many weird ways. Um, but yeah, it's really worth it. And like there's the music is really good and it, it sort of splits the difference between 
punk, uh, late '90s skater rock, and and what would come with uh, with uh, female singers in the 2000s and the 2010s. It's really really great. There's also something else I noticed while mulling over this movie last night because it really stuck with me. Is that there's three main songs that the group performs that each come up three different times in the movie, and each time they come up, it's in a different context, and the song has been changed in some way that actually links to the story. But one thing I realized is the very first song they sing in the movie, if you're paying attention, explains the plot of the movie. <laughs> And there's even like, like I think it's like it took it took there's even a line in the song it took five whole days and eight short hours, but if you piece together the timeline of the movie from beginning to end, it covers a five day eight hour period. Oh wow! It's really smart. You 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 need to see the Josie and the Pussycats movie. Oh, but the thing you mentioned about the Jos about uh, like Charlie's Angels, there actually is a joke uh, towards the end of the movie. We see a a news ticker, and on the news ticker it says there's going to be a Josie and the Pussycats movie, and it lists the cast, and it's the Charlie's Angels cast of the time. Oh no, shut. Yeah. Hmm. So How you about definitely that? Check out Josie and the Pussycats 2001. Did you, is it streaming or? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I watched it on HBO Max, but I think it's available on a few other platforms. Cool. Very cool. Uh, Alex, what have you been watching? Um, so I uh, took a trip to my hometown and went to the local record store. And I, I had a pile of stuff and I was trying to weed it down. I had two Lucio Fulci movies in my hand. And uh, one was Conquest. And since you had mentioned it a couple weeks ago, Thrasher, I was tempted to get it. And the other one was Cat in the Brain. So that one had a cooler box art and just such a ridiculous name. I had to I had to get it. And yeah. I watched this thing right off the jump. And it is fucking insane. I mean, even by Lucio <laughs> Fulci standards. And like, you know, once you buy that ticket, it's going to be, you know, hyper gore craziness. And the story of this is that it's about a, uh, you know, an aging horror director who is known for making very extreme violent films. And he can't tell, like, his films from his real life. And uh, uh, uh. so he's doing, like, an eight-and-a-half peeping Tom thing. And he actually plays himself in the film. And it is just, like, the sandbox opportunity for Lucio Fulci to do all the crazy Lucio Fulci shit, whether it's bashing in someone's head with a lead pipe. I mean, it's it's there's so much gore and excessive violence to this film. It's almost hilarious. I mean, like a wheelchair runs over somebody's neck and it like opens up and gushes out all this weird shit and, you know, arteries exploding and goop coming out of them. Um, and it was it's just fucking insane and uh, relentlessly violent to the, almost to the point of being silly, but um, quite possibly one of the, one of the most pleasurable, not pleasurable, but one of the most, uh, I guess just bonkers, um, uh, Lucio Fulci films out there that I've seen. So, Cat in the Brain, if you can pick up that Blu-ray, man, it's worth every penny. Does it have any commentary or anything to give context to why it's so bananas? I mean, it's like a self-reflexive thing where, yeah, you see, Fulci's playing himself, and I guess it's kind of like a commentary on his own career in a way. But, hmm. um, yeah, no, it's just... It's like a look into the mind of the director, and that director is Lucio Fulci, so I guess he's just someone who just kind of likes to wallow in his own sensationalism, but does so without coming off as a total schmuck, so good for him. Yeah, that's difficult to do. Yeah. Well, great. Well, we have a, a sequel scene here. 
Indeed and, we uh, do. Well, you set the stage. Just uh, just scroll up past all those miniatures that I posted <laughs> pictures of. Yes, yes. Um, all right, so so yes, this is when uh, Smaug has started chasing Bilbo and the dwarves uh, through uh, the dwarf forges. So this is when they concoct their plan to lure the dragon to the forge to the forge complex to let's let us say a deal with him. Oh. Um, what part would you like, Thrasher? I'd like Balin. I like doing an old grizzled old voice. Okay, and Alex? I will be I will be Thorin. Okay, and I'll be Dwalin, Dwalin, I don't know how they pronounce it. Um, oh, and I gotta and... say, this scene is very grim, because, it, and I'm surprised we didn't mention this. this, this is a scene that is almost too dark for this movie, when they find a chamber full of the charred remains of whole dwarf families. Yes, in fact, the line of dialogue, uh, if this is the end in fire, then we all burn together, is part of the lyrics of Icy Fire, the end credit song, which I think is actually pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's a good it's a good song. So anyway, yeah, so Balin sees a chamber full of dead dwarves with their only means of escape blocked. Alas, Tabarkin, they must have come here hoping beyond hope. We could make for the mines. It might last a few days. No, I will not die like this. Cowering, clawing for breath, we make for the forges. He'll see us, sure as dayeth. Not if we split up. Thorin, we'll never make it. Some of us might. Lead them to the forges. We kill the dragon. If this is to end in fire, then we will all burn together. I, I gotta ask, why is Thorin played by Larry Flint? <laughs> it's like, um, like remember Buffalo Bill in the sense of Lancer? Like, oh, was he a great big fat person? <laughs> oh, God, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what it made me think of is just some of the bad, like, voice acting in uh, 90s computer games when, like, they started to have voices for the first time. Well, oh, and yeah, every... Dr. Wiley. Wiley. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and stuff sounded so muffled because the, the audio quality was... Um... Oh, no, 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 you need to listen to the audio from that one Mega Man game with, with oh, that's the, the recorded that's... dialogue where they left in the line flubs. <laughs> that is Mega Man 8 on the PlayStation 1. <laughs> or uh, the Simpson games where they have, like, not the voice actors. It sounds like it's like uh, you have, like, virtual bard is trying to sound like Dan Castle and Etta. Oh, or like, yeah. wait, it does, man. Bad bard. Yeah. yeah. Or what I like. Uh... I had the Jurassic Park game on Super Nintendo. I never beat it because you couldn't save your game. It was really, really hard. But uh, it, when you start it, there, you know, there's a line from the movie that I think um, uh, Hammond, John Hammond says, Welcome to Jurassic Park. But but in the game, of course, they don't have the, the rights uh, to, to use clips from the movie. So it's just like a programmer saying, Welcome to Jurassic Park. It's like the, <laughs> when you press start on the title screen. It's like the most underwhelming... It's like, if you're going to say it like that, why not even have it? Well, not everybody right. had Sierra money. Not everybody could get Gary Owens. <laughs> no. I mean, the voice stuff is just so, uh, it was such a novelty at some point. Now it's everywhere. A anyhow, that's neither here nor there. We're talking about movies, allegedly. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, but, and then you were doing kind of a, a well, you're doing a Scottish thing, Thrasher, for... Uh... Well, I was... Yeah, I was sort of more of this. I was trying to sound like the, the actor, but I'm not sure it came out quite right. 
It sounded kind of Irish Scottishy. Yeah, definitely though. Yeah. Oh, so that um, makes it Cornish. That's what happens when you split the difference. Ah, yeah, literally. Actually, that's like actually the definition. <laughs> I just had Cornish beef for breakfast. Nice. Ooh. What are you gonna um, have for Elevenses? Uh, I don't know. My favorite one of those is second breakfast. I think. Uh, is... no, I gotta say, like, ha- li- like watching this movie, I'm now like obsessed. I want to do like a Hobbit style meal. Oh sure. Well, speaking of that, I should mention that real quick before I wrap up the show. Um, we're going a bit long anyway. So only for the first two movies, not the third one. IHOP did a tie-in with. Uh, oh yeah. I don't know why they didn't do it for the third one. It was a bit frustrating. But there's a wonderful YouTube video of I think well, for when the first movie came out, a bunch of cosplayers dressed as dwarves in armor and all came to the IHOP <laughs> and, and ordered like the. You know, whatever the fuck it was, like the, the dragon pancakes or whatever. It's the <laughs> stupidest. It's like, that's the kind of internet stuff I like. Just these idiotic, kind of, almost like real life trolling, I guess. I don't know what you'd call that. Like, it required quite a lot of effort to get these guys, you know, in. in it's, it's not trolling. trolling. That too. level of stuff can only happen if you're serious about it. Yeah, right. I mean, but like, if, if you've that's ever worn armor, like, it's really uncomfortable. It takes a long time to get set up. Like, you're, you're sweating constantly. It's... Yeah, I, w- I will say this Dungeons and Dragons, uh, the, the, the donning and doffing armor rules, highly unrealistic. I mean, there's sure, a reason yeah. why knights have pages. You need a second set of hands to get you into some armor. <laughs> and it's, it doesn't really work for day to day stuff, too. It's a. Right. You know, I, I regret to say I did not. Uh, if I could go back in time, I guess this would be a waste of a of a wish or something. But I would go sleepy. and steal those Hobbit menus. But you can't <laughs> see them online as PDFs. But uh, it's um, just what an of all the tie-in stuff. I think I guess the Hobbit is less silly than some, like compared to what for the Adams Family cartoon movie that's not that good that came out. They had like spider oh, like icing on the pancakes, or made it have purple syrup or some idiotic oh, thing. Because in the Hobbit, you can say this: there's a lot of food. Yeah, exactly. Right. So. I'd say, like, the beer makes the most sense. Sizzling well, it's at IHOP, unfortunately. Although I think if they sell yeah, beer, yeah. they do pretty well. Because yeah, right. I'd go there. They don't have Bloody Marys, do they? No. It's a, well, well, if if that a... Amazon Lord of the Rings TV series ever happens, and at this point I have my doubts, uh, we'll <laughs> see if they do any tie-in breakfast for that. You, you know, they've cast it. I think perhaps uh, COVID-19... Um, Delayed it a, a bit. I don't don't quote me on that. But I, speaking of fantasy shows, I did see they just finished filming season two of The Witcher, and I guess uh-huh. The Witcher is getting a prequel series for some reason. So, whatever. Why um, not? Fear of the Walking Witcher. Something like that. <laughs> Witcher first uh, class. Yeah. Witcher. Witcher uh, TV show is this? No. Yeah. Which are you watching? Which you watch. Uh, this is pretty good. I like that one. Okay. Anyhow, listeners, thanks for hanging in here for this uh, extended episode. On for this the most unexpected journey. Yeah, yeah, quite. On the Hobbit Desolation of Smaug. Next week, we'll be talking about the Hobbit Battle of the Five Armies. Which and, is one uh, chapter in the book. Uh, yes. So we'll see how it turns into a whole movie. We gotta defeat Smeag. Smeag. Smear. Smurg. Smeag. Smeg. Smeg. Would you like to develop an app? No, I'd like to defeat Smeg. Smash Megeki, Hobbit. Get your Lady. Yes. Uh, 
<laughs> We're trapped in a loop. We got to get out of here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. Follow um, me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, CrabNebula1914. And, uh, you know, leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app. Any Anytime you do that, it helps with the rankings and all that stuff is uh, fine and good. Tell your friends about the show. And um, go to SequelCast2.com to get all the episodes. And, yeah, so for SequelCast2, uh, this is Matt. <laughs> this is Thrasher. And this is Smig. Same. Take it away, Mr. Nimoy. In the middle of Earth, there's a strange little hobbit whom we all admire. Yeah, we gotta uh, cut that song in here. Yeah. Yeah. Fuzzy little toes, he lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Yeah, it's, I mean, because I, I believe Nimoy even had like a few albums. It seemed like every actor in the 70s did a... Uh, at least one album just because they could because it was with them like resting their elbow on a table you know like Leonard Nimoy the heat of my brain.